Hi, I'm Dan Permack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Facebook. Today is Tuesday, October 20th. Coronavirus positivity rates are up, Google stock is down, and we're focused on China's economic recovery. Yesterday, the Chinese government reported third quarter GDP growth of 4.9% year over year. In other words, GDP increased in China for a three-month period from before the pandemic to a three-month period after the pandemic. Yeah, growth is slower than it had been in 2019, but it's still growth. Why it matters is that China's economic experience is vastly different from what we're seeing in the U.S., which could lessen our leverage when negotiating on matters like trade. Now, there are expectations here of very large GDP growth between the second and third quarters of 2020. But again, that's the second and third quarters of 2020, not between last year and this year. Two major reasons for the discrepancy. First, China did a much better job getting the coronavirus under control, albeit partially through methods that wouldn't so easily fly in a Western democracy, or at least in our Western democracy. Two, China invested a lot more during the depths of the pandemic in terms of both government spending and business loans. The bottom line is that China's economy still does have a lot of scars from COVID-19, but it's healing fast and doing so in a way that may make it less dependent on the U.S. and the rest of the world. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper on the past, present, and future of China's economy with CNBC Beijing Bureau Chief Yunus Yun. But first, this. We're joined now by Yunus Yun, Beijing Bureau Chief for CNBC. So I'm talking to you from the U.S. There's always skepticism toward official Chinese economic numbers. Should we trust the numbers? That is a question that I get so many times. And the way that I and as well as a lot of other people who follow China's numbers look at it is that you really have to look at them as guidelines to economic growth. The numbers are suggesting some momentum when it comes to the growth and also that the recovery is not just led by investment. So when the pandemic first hit, the economy did very, very poorly. And then the authorities here went into you know, a mode to try to really lift up the economy. And a lot of that was through investment. So state-led. But now the numbers seem to be indicating that consumption is picking up, that services are coming back. In fact, I was looking at some of the numbers the individual sectors just today, and it was restaurant industry, hotels, logistics. So based on everything that's going on, 4.9% is a pretty good result. I mean, one thing I would say that was negative is that this was still lower than where the economy has been pre-pandemic. And that means that there's just a drag on the economy because of the pandemic, and that affects incomes as well as jobs. And that's when you look forward, even though the momentum looks pretty good, it's still a concern about how people are going to spend and exactly what they're going to do with their money. You talked about the state investments. Is there a belief that those investments not only helped stem some of the deep declines in those months, you know, February, March, April, but those have had kind of a lagging positive impact over the last quarter? In other words, something you could build upon? Yeah. I mean, there is a feeling that the investment that's been put in place is going to help to support the economy. And in particular, we saw in the property sector, there was a lot of investment in the property sector. And so in September, for example, it was up by 12%. A lot of people were saying, this is great. This is the best that we've seen in one and a half years. So the building blocks are there for the economy to 
continue to build forward. But I think what was really exciting for people was one that it wasn't only investment that we saw consumption as well as services pick up. And also that it looked as though the government here was able to really get the pandemic under control to a point where you are seeing more economic activity. For example, people are going to the movies. Does that part feel to you pre-pandemic? There's a difference in just the way you're able to socialize because we still have to use health codes or there are restrictions that come into place. Also, even just last week, my colleagues and I were meeting up for lunch and one of us couldn't make it. One of my colleagues couldn't make it because there was someone in her compound who had a fever who had come back from a different city where there was an outbreak. So suddenly her entire residential compound was shut down. So those are the types of things that are not normal. But at the same time, yeah, the uh, restaurants are bustling. People are going out. Is there a feeling that the reason that China is relatively back to normal because it took such hardcore restrictions in the first place? Well, here, definitely, there is a feeling that these hardcore restrictions were necessary and that China was doing the right things. And so because of that, now the Chinese are benefiting from those lockdowns and very restrictive measures that took place. In fact, yesterday, the state media was crowing very proudly that China is now what they've described as a beacon of hope for the world because they've been able to manage so well with these types of restrictions. And then, of course, that means that they were able to see quite strong growth relatively and that that's going to help the rest of the world when it comes to economic growth. If you think back to when the U.S.-China trade war began, one of the things you kept hearing from the Trump administration part was China's growth, while strong, was slowing a bit. U.S. growth was growing, and there was a feeling that the U.S. therefore had some leverage on that side. Those tables have turned now. Well, right now, yeah, most people aren't really discussing the trade picture as much as maybe you'd expect, just because everybody is so focused on what's going to happen after November 3rd. In terms of one other, I think, interesting change when you're talking about the dynamics between the U.S. and China is really the focus now here to look much more inward and domestically than before. So up until now, most of the economy here and everything is really very focused on exports and the U.S. consumer. And I don't think that that's going to change dramatically anytime soon. But the mantra here has been to look at the Chinese consumer as well as the impact for local manufacturers, for the Chinese consumer to get stronger and stronger. And a lot of that is even going to be codified next week when the leadership is going to have a very important policy meeting where they plan out the next five years. And one kind of buzzword or a buzz phrase, I should say, that's been going around is dual circulation strategy, which essentially does mean to depend more on domestic demand much more than ever before. That seems to be a global phenomenon at this point. Final question for you, and this will be the narcissistic American question. Since we are exactly today, two weeks away from an election here, A, how much attention is being paid to it among business people in China? And is there any consensus among kind of the business class in China, which U.S. presidential candidate would be better for them? There isn't any consensus. I've heard both sides. In the kind of earlier in the year, there was some suggestion by the U.S. intelligence community that the leadership here favored a Biden administration, just because it would mean that the Trump administration would get off their back when it comes to the way that China has been handling the pandemic or you know other issues such as the South China Sea. However, a lot of academics that I talk to, and also just when you look at the 
state media or, or some of the comments that we hear out of President Xi Jinping, it seems to be that the leadership is quite happy with some of the chaos that they're seeing in Western democracies, as well as the United States. And that in some ways that ends up legitimizing the authoritarian rule that the Communist Party here has. So we hear both sides. And then from the business community itself, the feeling has been that whether it's a Biden administration or a Trump administration, that the approach of the U.S. is going to be tough no matter what. And that maybe in the Biden administration, you'd see fewer tariffs or delistings, fewer restrictions on technology, maybe more cooperation and calls for trading partners to get together and really pressure Beijing, but that the approach itself from the United States is going to still be very difficult for China to contend with. Eunice Yoon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Welcome back. What we're watching today is the U.S. Justice Department, which filed its long-awaited antitrust lawsuit against Google. The complaint argues that the Silicon Valley giant used anti-competitive tactics to monopolize the online search and search advertising markets by doing such things as making Google search the default in browsers and mobile devices, including iPhones. And DOJ wasn't alone. It was joined on the suit by 11 state attorneys general, all Republicans. So we asked Axios tech policy reporter Ashley Gold what surprised her most within the complaint and how Google is responding so far. There's nothing in the lawsuit that I wasn't particularly expecting. We've known for a couple of weeks now that the Justice Department was going to go after Google for search and search advertising alleged abuses. What remains surprising is that a Republican-led Justice Department is alleging that a private company is harming consumers when this case has nothing to do with prices. Google's nutshell response is that the argument that the Justice Department is putting out is deeply flawed and doing anything from now would simply help competitors and not consumers. They're glad that the suit is finally out. They've been anticipating this for a year now. They have just wanted the Justice Department to act so they can get it going and try to make their case that this is not a fair suit and that they will win in a court of law. So I think they're ready to move on to the next phase. Today, we're also watching Southeastern Grocers, the operation of Winn-Dixie Supermarkets, which filed for an IPO that could end up raising around half a billion dollars. Two things to know. First, this IPO filing illustrates the massive increase in U.S. grocery consumption during the pandemic. The company reported a $62 million net loss for the first half of 2019, but this year, during that same period, it was a $206 million profit. Two, this is a pretty quick turnaround for Southeastern grocers because the company went bankrupt just two years ago. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers, Naomi Shaven, and Alex Sugiora. Have a great national branded fruit day, and we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios recap.